I'm Carl Rudy, and uh, I get to return back to 1 Samuel with you this morning and share our passage. Our text is 1 Samuel 21, the whole chapter. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you. And with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite and chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? I'm sure you have stories, especially those of you that have kids old enough or adult children to remember them when they were young and seeing traits in them when they were little that manifest themselves later, personality traits or strength of personality or even interests that over time show themselves in a certain way. I remember when our oldest was just about three or four and we, we just realized we got a strong personality on our hands. Where I remember I, who was no small dad, was standing there by the door saying, it's time to come in for dinner. And he would pound his foot on the f- pavement and tell me no straight to my face. Where his younger brother runs in quickly and he's like, no. Or when he was eight and we were at a birthday party and none of the other eight-year-olds would wrestle him in the kiddie pool but they would wrestle the six-year-old younger brother until a 10-year-old took my six-year-old and put his head under the water. And before I could even get up, 
my eight-year-old pile drove into him, and I just remembered him slamming this kid's head in the water as I didn't, I grabbed my eight-year-old, pulled him off and said, lay off, boy. Or when he was eighth grade, somebody on the football team did a cheap shot to one of his teammates, and I saw him drive this kid about 40 yards down the field before he buried him into the ground. When he defended, Dad, it is a contact sport. (laughs) The Bible shows us glimpses of the beginning of the story of Jesus and his personality and his power that is actually important for us to see. Like a Christian reading of the Bible sees it as a unified story. Just like you can look at your own adult children or aging children and see traits in them from when they were little. The things that they liked and manifest itself later. We actually see that when we rightly see the Bible as this testimony of God and his person and his work in the world. The Bible creates types or templates. Think of a template like a Word doc that opens up and all of a sudden the margins are already set. You'd have to actually change the margins to type beyond outside. Or think of it as your Christmas cookies where you have a, we, we have this, this, this little Christmas tree-shaped cookie maker that presses into the dough so that you can make the shape that you want for the cookie. And each of them, if pressed rightly, should look the same image. That's what you're getting in the Old Testament, where the Bible creates this image, this foreshadowing, this type that it uses throughout the story to explain important truths and to help us see who Jesus is and what he has done for us and how he ministers to us now. That's why the Old Testament is as relevant as the New. It's not just background material. You've heard me say probably a hundred times what Augustine has taught the church long ago. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. There's one story of God's ministerial work through Jesus Christ. And that's no more true here than anywhere else in the Bible. Before we look at the text, I want to remind you how Jesus taught us to read the Bible this way, and certainly his own disciples. If you remember the Gospel of Luke chapter 24, near the end of the story, Jesus had already died, already resurrected, and had yet to ascend when he meets some disciples walking on the road who do not recognize him. This road to Emmaus. And they're like telling Jesus, the guy himself, about all this stuff swirling around this one man. And they're like, have you not heard? We're we're, we're trying to package it all together. And here's what Luke 24, 27 says. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Hear that. Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures. This is prior to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, etc. This is literally just Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. I won't go on anymore. Our Awana kids could do that for us. It's not even the Gospels. It's just the Old Testament. And Jesus interpreted to them in all the Old Testament the things concerning himself. Because there was already this imprint of a person and an office and a position and a role and a ministry that would slowly being manifest and flesh out in his living ministry right there in the first century. So I'm going to pray and ask the Lord 
minister to us through his word that we would see the beauty of Jesus, the promise that he's given. In many ways, you could argue this is a beautiful Advent text about the one who would come to be the priest and the king of God for us, his people. Pray with me, would you? Father, help us to hear your word and to have it minister to us in this moment, in this season, in the life of our world, this nation, and this local congregation and community, and in our own individual lives, Father, minister to us. Through this text, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me set a little context of the passage that Carl just read for us. If you remember, 1 Samuel 20 was this powerful moment when Jonathan and David had this intimate bondship of friendship, and they were trying to figure out, at least Jonathan was, what is King Saul going to do now? Is he going to be after the head of David, or is he going to accommodate and be generous and kind to him? So he brings up at dinner and literally has a spear thrown at his head. I hope none of you experienced that at Thanksgiving. Obviously, King Saul saw David as an absolute threat and wanted nothing more than the end of his life. And Jonathan, who would have been the next king, but was a brother to David, showed an amazing Christian hospitality and brotherhood in caring for his friend and sending him on his way. Remember the end of chapter 20 was that powerful greeting between two brothers that just displays the love one anotherness that should be displayed in the body of Christ, the church, between siblings. So now David leaves, flees. He's on the run. He's on his own. He's fleeing from Saul. And you could almost argue that in the story now of the life of David in 1 Samuel, that these are David's wilderness years. Think of that metaphor from the nation of Israel. The city of Nob is like a suburb to Jerusalem. It is Besides Jerusalem Temple, which is obviously the center of religious authority, it's one of the main, call it multi-sites realities of the Jerusalem church. It is a religious center, likely located just a few miles outside the city. And many of the upper priesthood would spend their time or dwell there, which is what we find when David comes to Nob, he meets a priest named Ahimelech who's probably an upper-level priest, and he immediately recognizes David. And notice what verse 1 says. Ahimelech came to David, and it says, trembling. Like, well, what's he scared of? Was he nervous about the fact that this is a future king and he doesn't want to offend? Or was he actually nervous about the soon-to-be-outgoing king, Saul? Who, by the way, sorry to give the trailer away, will kill Ahimelech in the very next chapter. Probably that was his main concern. He knows that Saul is looking for David. Does he accommodate in any way? Does he help this fugitive? Is his own life at risk? Though verse 1 seems to say so. And he asks, why are you alone? And why is no one with you? Like it makes him nervous. And here's what David said in verse 2. David said to the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. David claims the king, put that in quotes, gave him a mission. Is he 
Talking about Saul, that would be a lie. The text doesn't give us any clue specifically, nor condemns him for potentially lying. Or is David using vague language in reference to God, who is the true king? And you may remember that earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, God never gave the full title king to any other human because the true king of God is God himself. God's king is Jesus. So every time the text would talk about, oh, you want a king, it would use a lesser title that we would translate something like prince. Sorry, king is taken, you can be prince. And now the Israelites saw that as king language and king like the other nations, but ultimately they were being taught that there's really only one king. So even when David, he doesn't use the title prince, he uses that language of king, is he just implicating God and saying, God has me on a mission that at this time is not maybe even fully publicly known, but God has assigned me to be king. We don't know for sure. He may also be trying to protect Ahimelech because you'll note down in verse seven, the text reminds us or informs us that a certain man of the servants of Saul named Doeg, that's a great name, Doeg, the Edomite. He was around. And the language of herdsmen probably is referring more to a military role. That's a soldier. It'd be like a captain. He probably had some set of guards with him. And so you can imagine that Ahimelech is a little nervous with Doeg nearby. As you'll see, maybe David is too. So they have this cryptic conversation And then David makes two requests that I want you to know. The first is in verses 3 to 6. David directs the conversation in a different way, and then he basically asks for food. What do you have on hand? He asks for five loaves of bread or whatever is here. Maybe because he had, it seems like as we find later, certain number of men with him. So maybe he was asking for a loaf for each man. Either way, he asked for some bread. The priest answers and says, I got a problem. I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. And he's concerned about purity rights because the text will explain in a minute. Uh, the priest, verse six, gave, ends up giving him the holy bread For there was no bread, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So so what that is, is David asked for bread and all that's left is the consecrated bread in the temple or the bread of the presence. Every Sabbath, 12 loaves of freshly baked bread would be placed in the temple for God with last week's bread sitting there all week until the moment new bread was to come. When that bread, the old bread, was removed, it was to be only consumed in the temple because it was sacred bread, and it was only to be consumed by a priest. It wasn't just like you could give to the poor. or There could be other giving to the poor, but this was reserved for the temple. It was God's bread. And God would allow his, the under-shepherds of God to feast on it, as part of their provision, just like of the meat and sacrifices. But again, that was regulated. The 12 loaves, by the way, symbolize the 12 
tribes of Israel. Ahimelech the priest knows that David does not qualify. He knows he's not a priest. He is not supposed to give him the bread, but he does. The text makes no mention that David or Ahimelech did wrong, even though David was officially not a Levitical priest. What do we do with that? Was it wrong of David to ask or to receive? Was it wrong of Ahimelech to give the bread in the first place? Well, maybe Jesus can help us. Because actually, in three of the four Gospels, Jesus refers to 1 Samuel 21, and specifically verses 3 to 6. Now, you might say, why not all four? Well, part of the reason is, is if Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on the earthly origins of Jesus, John starts in Saturn and focuses on the eternal origins of Jesus. So they all have their nativity scenes, except John tells a story from Saturn about the word in the beginning with God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus teaching about this event in a context where the religious leaders in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, are challenging him for allowing his disciples to eat from the grain fields. I have actually the, 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 the text from Luke 6 right in your sermon notes. Here's the story. I'm reading from Luke 6. On a Sabbath, now notice that, on a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, Jesus his disciples plucked and ate some bread, some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, which is a big deal, meaning that's work. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Now you're thinking, that really isn't work. No one's sorting like, that was a tough grain head, right? Like, but that's work. Let me give you an example. Friend of mine spent some time in Israel, and they would go to Israel, and then they would have meetings on the Sabbath on the fourth floor of this building. The, he was with all of his Jewish colleagues they could not take the stairs because that would be work, but they could use the elevator, but they couldn't push the buttons. Because by pushing the buttons, technically, you're facilitating work. So what would happen in all these buildings is that the Jews would hire a Gentile to stand at the elevator to ride up with the Jews. So if you were Jewish on the Sabbath, if it was any other day, you could walk in, push the button, you're good to go. But if it was the Sabbath, you'd walk in and say, fourth floor, please, and someone else would have to push the button. It had to be a Gentile, couldn't be a Jew. And they would go up to the fourth floor and then they would be good because they couldn't touch the button because that would be work based upon their Jewish law. So again, you can just imagine a Pharisee with the same kind of legalism an interpretation of the Old Testament saying even the rubbing of the heads of the grain would be violating the work. So here's Jesus seeing his disciples do this, maybe participating himself, and then he gets confronted with the same question. Some of the Pharisees, verse 2 in Luke 6, said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, exactly what 1 Samuel 21 talks about, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. Jesus even confirms not just that he took the bread from the temple, but it actually didn't even belong to him. And also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, and here's the, here's the statement in Luke 6, 
which hits on a different theme that we're not going to track down today. But the thrust of Jesus' message in this teachable moment, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, two things from that text. Jesus' reference to 1 Samuel 21 might be helpful for us. First, Jesus uses this in support of his actions on the Sabbath. This is how he ultimately explains in Mark's gospel that the Sabbath was made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath, that the Pharisees had misunderstood the purpose of the law. But more importantly, by speaking this way, guess what Jesus does? He aligns himself to David. Like he, he, There's that image, that type, and Jesus jumps right into that, which gives a unity and a connection between David and Jesus. Now this fits the Bible's depiction of Jesus fulfilling the role of David that God established. In fact, in the context of 1 Samuel 21, if we were to jump back then into 1 Samuel 21, David is being depicted as having a priestly role. In the full biblical story, this passage is already showing us. Remember that language of type? Foreshadowing, winking, that strong little four-year-old boy on the front steps of our house back in California stomping his feet? The text is already showing us from, how the, from the line of David would come one who would have a priestly role. And by the time we get to the New Testament... The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. We see this full display and depiction of Jesus as our high priest from the line of David. Well, that's important to note because everybody thought that the person or the type of David would be a king, and we'll see a glimpse of that in a minute, but probably didn't think priest. How this one person, Jesus, fills all of these roles, and here 1 Samuel 21 is showing us when those things began to coalesce. Well, David's not done. He's got food, but he doesn't have a weapon. Notice what he says. I already mentioned that verse 7 adds interesting information about Doeg the Edomite, who's there. So then David, verse 8, says to Ahimelech, uh, do you have a spear or sword at hand? Anybody said that to you at Thanksgiving? Hey thanks, hey, thanks for the stuffing. Do you happen to have a spear I could borrow? He goes, for I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, verse 9, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod, that is, behind some of the religious decor. If you will take that, take it. For there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. Now, in one sense, that's just a small scene of a guy coming to get some bread and coming to get and borrow a sword. But in light of the fuller story, I think there can be more that is seen. Saul's key servant, Doeg, is present. David asked for a weapon. And coincidentally, the sword of Goliath was behind this religious decor in the temple. Without any pushback, the priest gave the sword to David. Now, now hear this. Such an action not only gives religious affirmation to the kingship of David, which this whole chapter is trying to communicate to us, 
but it also offers a kind of coronation of David as king. And here's why. In the Bible, a sword is a symbol of authority. The word of God is described as what? A sword. It's a symbol of authority. It's the, it's the, it's the commands of the king that need to be heeded by all. It never fails. It cuts both ways. It strikes. It, 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 it will do its work. It is under which we submit. In the book of Revelation, a sword is constantly depicted either in the hand of Christ or even at times in, in, in relation to the word of God as proceeding from his mouth. When he speaks, it is the authority of the king. It's a symbol of the king. Maybe you've read or watched this movie called The Lord of the Rings, where in the return of the king, King Aragorn gets a particular tool called a sword. And with that sword in his hand, there is power and authority that facilitates the battle, the seemingly insurmountable battle, changes course when the king receives back his sword. Like all of those images, by the way, whether it's from Tolkien or others, is borrowing from the Bible, which describes the sword as a symbol of a king. So, did you see the imprint, the type? Did you catch it? Do you see how the shadows in the Old Testament become clear and visible images in the New? As much as David is a historical character in the Bible, he did exist. He is also a type, a template for Christ. Remember Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, including 1 Samuel 21, the things concerning himself. This not only teaches us how to read our Bibles, but draws us to look at Christ as our true priest and our faithful king. God's priestly king was always going to be Jesus Christ. Even David needed the priestly kingship of Jesus. This is why by the time we get to the New Testament, you see that double title for Christ. He is both Savior and Lord. Savior is a priestly title, and Lord simply means anointed one or king. He is Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. He is the priestly king. Brothers and sisters, this is intended to minister to us now. It is not just a literary exercise or a cool understanding of the biblical story between Old and New Testament. It is meant to be read. The reason God didn't just say, well, you've got the New Testament, who needs the Old? He wanted 1 Samuel 21 in its own way to minister Christ to us. I shared with you two weeks ago from this very place about the difficulties our family is now going through as my wife is being diagnosed with ALS. And those have been a unique two weeks for us. And for me, who now, more than I've ever had to do, is reaching for Christ, who is king and priest, who is a priestly king, who absolutely sovereignly rules over all creation and every electron and every atom and every carbon and every doctor's visit 
all the, he, he, he reigns over that, yet he is not just some removed, deistic, all-powerful being. He is a priest who fully enters in, who is wrapped in swaddling clothes, in, enmeshed in the realities of our broken and fallen world, mine included. And this text is ministering to us in that way, so that Jesus becomes our everything. And Jesus makes sense of everything. Because whether it's the sovereignty that we need or his compassion and his grace, it is the one person that David foreshadowed that Jesus came to be and that by the ministering spirit and the promise of Christ returning, with a sword, by the way, but dressed in white like a priest, he will come again. Now, if my family needed this this two weeks, I can only imagine that some, if not all of you, need that same Christ. You need the same reminder that Jesus Christ is your priestly king who reigns over all of our creation and your world in particular, and yet at the same time is lovingly, graciously, and sacrificially ministering to you and yours. Praise be to God. And we should live differently because of that truth. We mourn, but not without hope, because we know who the priestly king really is. Now, if that's true for us, you would have thought it'd be true for David. Here he is imaging Christ in this role as priestly king, but as our text ends in verses 10 through 15, it is not the case at all. Unlike Christ, David responds out of fear and fails to live out his identity as the priestly king. After all those beautiful images that maybe now in light of the full biblical story we can see, we've even got Jesus referring back to this text in regard to himself, like we can put those together, but he, he didn't. He had the sword, the coronation of the king. He had the priestly announcement of the bread, but he was scared. Verse 10 and following, the scribe, as he comes in, he is immediately recognized. He is now a celebrity. It'd be like any one of our famous people just trying to shop at Schnooks. Everyone would be looking and know he is there. And they're singing songs of his greatness and putting him against Saul, who is already angry enough. So look at verse 12. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid. So look at 13. So he changed his behavior. Notice that statement. He didn't live out who he was. The same guy. I mean, the the same person that stood before greatest warrior in human history, who went out there with a shepherd's pouch and some pebbles your kids would pick up from a creek bed, with no armor, after 40 days of all the grown men in the nation of Israel cowering in fear, This young boy walks out there and says, I come in the name of God. That is trust. In spite of all the reasoning and rationale of worldly thinking, that boy walked out there and trusted in the God who would defend him and the honor of his people. And now, after just receiving the official office of the future Christ, he cowers. The text shows the embarrassment 
by saying in verse 13, he pretended to be insane. He made marks on the doors of the gate like scratching, like he was crazy, and he let his spittle run down his beard. And the king basically says, I got enough crazy people to deal with. Why should I let this guy be in my house? David is the priestly king of God, yet he acts like a madman. He failed to be who he was assigned to be. He instead played the part that fit the pressure of the moment. Brothers and sisters, how often does the pressure of the moment rule over us? Listen to the words of the New Testament that exhort us to know who we are in Christ and to live that out. Romans 6, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too might we walk in newness of life. That ceremony we celebrated not long ago where the individuals were brought below the water and raised up. Paul saying, that is your new birth. Live out your birthright. Walk in the newness of life. How about 1 Corinthians? Paul says, But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. You are still of the flesh, like you're letting that sinful condition own you. That's what flesh means. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? In contrast to Christian. And finally, Galatians chapter 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Like all of a sudden, the very thing that the New Testament will pastorally exhort us to live out our Christian faith, we're already seeing a glimpse of that in the life of David. Christians, all of you are heirs of Christ the King. If you believe in Jesus Christ and have properly been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you are a child of God. God's spirit rests in you. You are heirs of the king. And our congregation is a part of the faithful high priesthood of Jesus Christ. As I read from the Belgian confession at the start of service about Christ the king ruling over all his people and all the world. And Hope Evangelical Free Church is part of that. That is who you are. So how shall you live? with all the pressures of the moment, try to minimize you from trusting in Jesus, your high priest. 
who ministers to your every need, or Jesus, your true king, who reigns over all circumstances, in whom will you trust? Praise be to God, and unlike David, and unlike me, and probably unlike all of you, Jesus Christ faithfully lived out His kingly and priestly identity for our good and for the glory of God. Praise be to God for Jesus. Will you trust Him as your King? Will you trust Him to be your priest? 1 Samuel 21 beckons you to do so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for helping us to be, to become the kind of people that we could not be in ourselves. You are a gracious and faithful king and high priest. Help us to see the promised provision of Christ, even in this Old Testament text, and to live in the new covenant as grateful and obedient recipients of your goodness and grace. Father, some of us this morning need to be reminded that you are king. And some of us this morning needed to be reminded that you are priest. And maybe like me, some of you, some of us need to be reminded that you are both. Oh, Father, may your word minister to our souls. May it help, may it firm us up, strengthen us. May it let us be dependent upon you. May it give us strength and courage in moments of crises. May we live differently with grace and love because we know it is true and right. May we not live in fear like David did. And trust not in might nor in power, but help us to trust in your spirit. Father, receive these words as we, your people, ground ourselves in Christ, our cornerstone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.